Welcome to the Heartbreak Kids Podcast, where we explore what connects us all in our yoga practice and in our lives. This is where I talk to people about their stories, who they are, what they've been through, and where they're going. And in this podcast, that's what we explore. I believe deep down inside, we're all connected, which explains why we bring ourselves to the top of our mat every day. Welcome to the Heartbreak Kids. So welcome to the next edition of the Heartbreak Kids. I'm here with Sam Vitrano. And, you know, I've kind of admired her for a lot of different reasons. I've been watching her on um, Instagram for for actually many years now. Uh, I feel like I'm getting old. But I've I've watched her um, kind of step up and give voices to, to things that really people don't want to talk about. And she's always talking about them. And I think we're going to have a huge conversation here today. And I'm really excited. Uh, She's a teacher. She's in Boulder, Colorado. And, um, you know, she's got a lot to offer the world. And so I appreciate you being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah. So let's start it by who Sam was before she started yoga. Who were you? (laughs) Who was Sam before she started yoga? I think I'm still piecing together who I am in this moment. But when I reflect, um, yeah, the trajectory of life makes sense a lot of times, right? You're like, oh, Um, I was born and raised in New Jersey, in central Jersey, uh, Jackson. Um, I grew up with two parents. My parents were married for the first like 10 or so years of my life, but uh, it definitely didn't take me long to understand uh, that there was something definitely a little bit off about my childhood. I mean, I grew up with... How so? I grew up with um, an extremely bipolar father. So he um, really struggled to keep his manic uh, episodes in check. Um, So we didn't really... And the really amazing thing about the present is we're starting to get so comfortable with mental health and we're getting so comfortable with things like therapy. But growing up in the 90s, um, we were, you know, it seems like seems like we were 100 years behind where we are right now in terms of like <laughs> it just not being something that people talked about and it really not being something that was treated. So, um, yeah, I think there's a few factors that I can like lead up to who I am and how it brought me to yoga. And the first one is definitely like an extreme amount of uh, of early childhood trauma. Um, And definitely the older I get, the more I realize that a lot of people go through a lot of different traumatic events through their life, whether it was in childhood or later. Um, So for a really long time, that felt really isolating. But um, the older I get and the more I speak out, the more I realize that I'm not I'm not the only one that's experienced something like that. So definitely um, a very like uh, abusive and toxic childhood, but also a childhood without any form of religion or spirituality. And I feel like that when you when you mix like trauma and a lack of maybe religion, I think sometimes um, religion can even just commi- uh, create a community for people and like um, some kind of hope for people. <laughs> so yeah. I definitely felt that that was lacking when I was a kid. You know, I was always really, really jealous of my friends that went to Sunday school or CCD, which was another form of a you know, Christian uh, education. So just any kind of structured, any kind of structured religion, I was a little bit, I felt left, I felt pretty left out. 
Yeah, you felt isolated to a certain extent. I think I think the the childhood of an abused uh, child is in in nature um, isolating because when you're young, you don't understand what's happening to you in entirety, but you know, but it does things to your nervous system. So like, I remember being in like sixth or seventh grade and the nickname that my friends came up with me was spaz because little, like I didn't know at the time, but I was dealing with like a very, very serious anxiety disorder from all of the abuse and the way that you respond to the outside world is then like, neurologically changed, right? Like, um, you know, fight or flight kind of steps in in moments where it shouldn't and it changes your behavior. So in a lot of ways, um, it's extremely isolating, right? It can can really uh, trigger mental health issues and it can really, it doesn't, at least for me, um, my childhood is definitely not something I really talked about or acknowledged until I was like midway through my 20s. So, And, And why didn't you talk about it? I think just because it was so traumatic or I think you don't I think when you're an actual child you're just trying to survive so you don't really have a you don't realize what exactly is different you just know something's wrong and I think a lot of times there's not especially in the 90s early 2000s I didn't really feel like there was much of a place to express myself around that um and you know and that can lead into in my in my very early 20s, I was sexually assaulted. And I remember about eight years, nine years later, the Me Too movement happens, right? And it was mm-hmm. like, it's like, sometimes you need to be given the language of what actually happened to you in order to process and understand it. And I think sure. that a lot of us don't have those, have those tools, you know? Yeah, I mean, and especially as a child, I mean, you know, your parents are really trying to raise you or, or in like an ideal home they're I mean, they're supposed to protect you. They're supposed to take care of you. They're supposed to like, you know, provide like a nurturing aspect. And it, and it sounds like you didn't have that. No, I think, I think even when you have one good parent in an abusive situation, they're so concentrated on surviving that the entire, um, the shield of protection just completely melts The you know, my mother was working so many jobs and trying just so hard to, you know, you know, feed us that survive that it really, even though she was a great mother, it definitely leaves you with a lot of lacking. Yeah, for sure. Um, that has to be super traumatic. Um, sorry, I had to go through that. That um, I, I also had a, a kind of a traumatic, um, you know, early childhood um, with some different events. And man, it it it, it took a lot of therapy to kind of get out of that. <laughs> yeah. And you know, I feel like you're lucky if you even get to the point of therapy, because I feel like a lot of us live our lives just trying to cope and you don't even realize that there are, and you know, even, you know, we haven't even started about this, but like mental health is very, very, mental health treatment is very, very inaccessible. So even when I was younger, like my mom tried to send me to therapy when I was little, like, I was very depressed when I was in my early college years. And, um, like borderline suicidal and she tried to send me to therapy, but it was like $150 a session. So not covered, you know? So it's just like, um, it became unaffordable. Yeah. That's, um, yeah, it is unaffordable. I mean, healthcare is unaffordable basically. It is. Yeah. So, I mean, and so do you, I mean, do you feel like even today, that you that you have to cope, or do you feel like you're you're living today? I feel like you said that a couple of times. <laughs> it's always a mix of both, right? It's always a mix of 
of um, constantly coping, but at the same time, finding the moments where you, you, you do live, you do feel free. And I mean, you know, a lot of us have a lot of things that have damaged us, you know? So I think we're, I think, you know, I read this book that was the body keeps score and it goes through how many people experience some form of trauma. And it's like 70 plus percent of people experience some form of, of trauma. And I think all of our, all of us are holding that as we, as we live through life. And I think a lot, a lot of this mental health awareness is so, so, so important because there's many of us out there that are struggling, you know? So. Sure. And, and do you feel like you're, you're currently struggling with, uh, with some of the things that you were dealing with when you were a child? I think, you know, uh, for, I, I do have a, an anxiety disorder that I've had since I was a child. And I do, you know, have things like ADHD and um, just, you know, issues that I don't know will ever fully leave me. But I definitely think that there is a way to find uh, help that you can kind of navigate it a little bit better. But the problem is, is that a lot of the help is got has got a really high price tag on it. You know, I I just was able to afford therapy in like my late 20s, you know, so I, I don't think a lot of people have that access. And if you don't have access to tools, then I don't I don't I think a lot of people struggle with these things, you know, all right. Around, I mean, day. it gets ca- it gets carried into your 30s, into your 40s, oh. into your 50s. And yeah. the other thing is, I think just like a lot of other people in the United States, I thought yoga could kind of be this therapy and as much as it can really aid into the healing process like for me for someone who's gone through like multiple pretty severe traumas like I I I worry that people replace um you know like talk therapy and and actual tools that they can uh, help their mental health with and, and instead use yoga and I don't think that a lot of the instructors that teach yoga are really qualified um to deal with that so <laughs> no i would say almost all of the teachers exactly. of yoga are not qualified to deal with that I, I mean but there is it's the same kind of thing happens i feel like when people practice they there's this um you know transference that that occurs when someone is practicing and like the teacher you know either takes on the role of of something that they're dealing with and, and sometimes it can help them, but they're still not qualified for it. And it's, um, it's for sure. dangerous too. You know, like I think that when I was younger, I didn't really know about boundaries. Even when I first started teaching yoga asana, and sometimes people would come to me like I was a therapist and try to be there and help, but I'm not qualified. You know, I'm not qualified. I'm not a counselor. I'm not, so you can actually cause more harm than good by trying to interject, you know? Totally. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny because I've run the charity. It's called the Training Foundation. And, you know, like we always try and steer people, you know, when they reach out to us, it's like, okay, well, you need a support network. You need like a community. Yeah, you should practice yoga. But yes, you should also do the 12 steps or seek also therapy. Um, and so we always suggest, I mean, really all of those things. Um, which I think is really important. Yeah. And uh, one of them alone is uh, not, it's not good enough. Exactly. So, yeah. And so how did you come to yoga? So you didn't finish the story. Yeah, I didn't finish the story. So I guess around 17, I was in late high school. Um, yoga started to become a little bit more popularized in my area in central Jersey. And there was like two studios within an hour radius. And I found myself at a Shivananda studio 
you know, just kind of going along with a bunch of older white women that are dressed in like all white, you know, they were meditating, they were chanting. And I was just like, maybe, you know, maybe this is something, I don't know exactly what this is, but it's something. (laughs) And that was, you know, my first introduction to it. And I kind of, I went, ended up going to school for a year in South Jersey and there was a Hindu temple next, um, right next to our school that this old Indian woman taught like basic Hatha yoga. And so, you know, that, you know, that's 2007, 2006, 2000, yeah, 2006, 2007. So that's really before Instagram kind of changed yoga as we know it into something way, way, way more body um, focused and I think diet focused. Um, so at that point in time, I really, I appreciated what yoga had been doing for me, even if it was just moving my body. I had a, a really bad eating disorder at that point too. So just any way to connect with my physical body was really helping. But, um, sure. you know, by the time I went through my teacher training in like 2012, yoga and Instagram had already started to merge. And I think that that really changed. That really changed how yoga worked as a tool for a lot of us. And, you know, it, it started changing it. So like you were trying to um, build this facade online almost so that, you know, everyone wanted attention on Instagram. Everyone was competing on Instagram. Everyone's trying to do handstands in the prettiest place they possibly can. And it just changed what I thought yoga was, if that makes sense. Yeah. And how did that shift like, kind of materialize for you? Ah, well, I think, um, you know, I think way more American women deal with eating disorders than we can ever imagine and also deal with sexual assault and all of these things. So the environment that we have been producing around Instagram yoga is really not helping a lot of people. You know, the average size in a, in a women's store is like, what, a size six? And the average woman in the United States is like a size 14. So we're constantly bombarded with just body dysmorphia and all of these images. And then you're walking into a yoga studio in like 2014, and they're telling you you're in there to tone your butt or you're in there to get a beach <laughs> And I think, and and also no, absolutely no boundaries with touching, right? Up until very recently, there, no one used consent cards. No one really asked if they could touch you. And this really opened up an environment where I think now reflecting on it, that a lot of people that are struggling with, especially sexual trauma are very, very triggered by um, even, even touching that we wouldn't see as sexualized, you know, and then even past that, you know, I've had many experiences with, uh, men, male teachers where they don't, they're not touching you just because it's necessary. They're touching you because they want to touch you, you know, and that, that creates a really bad environment for a lot of women. So yeah, I think that's, it's really become pretty gross. I think I think it's really geared to able-bodied white affluent women, and even though men still dominate the teaching sphere, which is really interesting to me. And I know we have more women that are teachers, but look at who is famous from teaching yoga mostly mostly men. So it's just like it's a very interesting. It's it's created a very interesting culture, right? Where we just like give people the autonomy to touch and talk to people under the guise of spirituality. Like they're always helping them, and and we know for a fact that they're not. That a lot of times they're abusing them. So, I definitely yeah. think, I definitely think uh, Instagram kind of did something. In it's there's something to be said with like spreading the message of yoga, and Instagram did that. But at the same time, it really, uh, it really hurt it in a lot of ways, in my opinion. It 
Yeah, I mean, it definitely made it awkward and it took some of the essence out of it, for sure. Um, I agree with you there. And, and I agree with a lot of the things that you said. I, I, I mean, it's made it sort of where there's a competition as well. And that's, that's what feels gross to me the, uh, the most uh, from my perspective. I'm not discounting yours. It's like, you know, because yoga is not really about, it's about connecting your, your body, connecting to your own breath, like living the best life that you can possibly live, you know, finding your passion, finding your purpose, like taking care of your, your side of the street, yeah, taking care of yourself, like all of those kind of things. Like that's what yoga means to me. Right. And so it's really awkward when, you know, like everyone's fighting for likes, you know, totally. it's, like, it's a like, rat race. But even just the privilege of, you know, yoga teachers don't in the United States don't really get paid enough. So it's like, who do you see being successful at becoming, you know, at, like successful yoga instructors? It's usually people that were born into upper middle class families. It's usually people that are able bodied. It's usually people that are white or it's, you know, it's, it's always the access. And I feel the same way about Ashtanga. You know, I went back and forth to Mysore for years and I was really looked down upon because I couldn't go for longer. And it's just like, you know, I, I am not a, a housewife. I am not, my parents don't, you know, I don't have a trust fund. I don't you know, have a job that I can leave for three months at a time that I can just put on pause while I go not work for three months. Like that's never been a reality to anyone in my life. So it's just like, even that, uh, really, you know, how many people can even afford to get to India? You know, we every time, every time I'm in, you know, India or you know, uh, going around the country, most people, you know, if you're living in India, your average salary is what, like under seven hundred dollars a year. So it's just like even the fact that you have this rushing in of of. I don't know, um, tourists into the Mysore region in India. Like I, I feel gross when I reflect on even, you know, my behavior as a white person in India, you know, we all took photo shoots all over the communities, right? Like, it's just like, ah, some, some level of disrespect that just doesn't feel right to me, you know? Yeah, I, I, I do know. Um, and that, that was a topic of conversation, like maybe in 2015 or 16 in, in Mysore with bunch of authorized teachers for sure but i mean they they also i'm gonna play the devil's advocate i mean they also take pictures here in the united states too so does that defy does that defile the united states as well well i think it's really like we have to see what you know my ancestors are english you know i'm half english and it's my actual ancestors that went over to india and colonized and tried to pretty much stomp Hinduism and yoga and Sikhism and all of these practices off the face of the planet. Um, and then, you know, white people that have enough money to go over, you know, it's just like, I've seen people haggle with rickshaw drivers over t- uh, with tuk-tuk drivers over like 20 cents. And as someone that's coming from the United States or the West that can afford to come over, I just feel like um, it is degrading the, you know, I saw my, my photographer asked me to do a picture in a temple, you know, and I, at first I did it. And then, you know, an older man comes up to me and is like, this is disrespectful. You shouldn't be doing a yoga pose in the middle of this temple. And it's just, I think there, there is a cheapness of a lot of what we're doing, you know, and I don't, I don't think that, you know, it, it, I mean, that's definitely like capitalism, you know, mixed with American, you could also say white privilege. Mm -hmm. Know, to, to go over there and, and, and do it. I, I totally get it. Um, I, I, it makes a lot of sense to me. I, I, 
it, I've just never heard anyone speak so passionate about. I mean, you know, part of the reason I'm having you, having you on the show is because I know that you're passionate about this stuff. I want to hear your side of the story. And so, like, I know what my opinions are. I feel like my listeners know what they are. It's like, you know, and you're sharing yours uh, because I, I think it needs to be heard to a certain extent. And so it's pretty, pretty powerful that, you know, that you had that realization where I feel like most people don't have that realization. Like there is not that self-awareness that, you know, that maybe this isn't right or that, that question mark. And, and that means that you have a conscience and that's a good thing. <laughs> and, and still talking from an extreme point of privilege, right? Like I, I still grew up, you know, white in the United States and maybe a little bit on the poorer side, but at the same time, like access to almost anything I, I, I could imagine. Right. So it's just like, it's unfortunate that I do feel like oftentimes I almost have to act as a gatekeeper to um, bring attention to places where it should already be. You know, like I, I still am white. I'm still able-bodied. I'm still young. I'm still all of these things that fit into this box of like, Oh, of course I, I'm able to get this spotlight, but other people aren't, you know? So it's just like, it's, it's, it breaks my heart at the same time that I do feel like I constantly, um, I have to use that privilege to give access to other people or bring spotlight to something that I don't know. I, I think a lot of white girls just wouldn't listen to unless it was coming from another white girl. So it's just like that part is, is disheartening, right? Totally. Yeah. And so why did you take on the role of gatekeeper? Why did you feel the need to take on? Well, you know, honestly, it's something that I think that white people should move away from. You know, it's even how I felt about teaching yoga teacher trainings. It got to a certain point that I, you know, I had enough information. I had enough um, resources to know that maybe it was time to take a step back from certifying new teachers to be to be yoga instructors. It just felt like, um, and you know, it's, I don't think I definitely didn't don't want to take on a role of gatekeeper, but I feel as if white people do take on that role oftentimes. And you know, they're the, actually the people that, you know, not only have the ability, but sometimes they're the only people that have the access to kick down that door. And that's wrong. You know, it, it should be available to everyone, body sizes, you know, ability level, you know, all these, we think, we don't think about so many people in the yoga, in the yoga world. And that, you know, I had one of my friends, Rachel come to teach a yoga class at Bodhi about, five years ago when we were still in New Jersey, six years ago. And, you know, she's a super strong handstander. And when she was coming to my studio, I was like, I'm going to get all of my handstand crew and they're all going to be here and it's going to be popping off and come to realize that I had, had been so blind and ignorant to the fact that, you know, she's a black woman. And when she came in, my studio was filled with black people for literally the first time ever. And it took you know, for me to see the opposite of what I usually saw to even realize that I was missing so many people that didn't look like me, whether it was in age, whether it was in body size, whether it was in, you know, race, what, you know, whatever we're talking about, all of these people are being, you know, even the awareness around, um, you know, non-binary and the trans, the trans community, like we don't have that education usually as yoga instructors to make people feel comfortable and welcome. Yeah. Yeah, that's a big thing. I mean, especially at our studio, we've been trying really hard to make sure that there's access to, you know, the uh, people that are trans or, you know, people non-binary, all, all of that. And um, I mean, it's hard, uh, but we, we have constantly worked on it. I mean, we've also tried to provide access for people who are struggling with addiction, um, which, you know, I, I feel like that's another population that totally, totally. gets forgotten. 
that gets forgotten about. Um, yeah, so that's very interesting. And so how, how did you get so passionate about this? Like what sparked it? Because I know that I wouldn't have survived my childhood unless other people gave a shit about someone else besides themselves. And I feel like that we all deserve people around us that care about us and not just with issues that impact us personally, but like that is what it means to be a human. You know, like I studied philosophy, I've studied religion, I've studied a lot of spirituality. And the same theme that you get back to is we're all the same, just dealing with humanness from different like lenses, right? Like, so ultimately empathy and like love and compassion, all these things, it's really all we have to create this fulfilling life and to see one another and to like live a full life. Like it's really the only thing that people live for is, is connection, right? So it's like the more that we see each other as other and don't realize that we're the same, we're just in different forms that, you know, I don't think we'll ever come together as humans. I mean, just look at the state of the world right now. Right. Like, look at this political election that's coming up. Look at the state of the rest of the world, you know. So, that's crazy. yeah, I, I mean, I mean, we have to care about each other. I wouldn't have gotten into a spiritual practice like yoga unless I really believed that there was some kind of unifying force between all life. Right. Like, that's ultimately what yoga talks about, that there is one source and Brahman, and we all come from that source, and we all have our own individualized soul, and we're just seeing it through little different light bulbs, little different lenses, right? So it's just like, we have to come home to one another. You have to care about other people. Yeah. I mean, that's a pretty powerful statement too, because I, I feel like that's sort of what's lost in, you know, it's funny because it's sort of lost in some religions. And it's also, I'm very connected in other religions that, that we're all supposed to be one and together and all of that stuff. And you definitely see that in the state of affairs that are happening in the United States. Totally. I yeah. mean, it's all, yoga is, I thought that yoga was removed from the rest of, you know, culture and society within the United States a little bit in terms of like, I didn't think I would see sexual abuse. I didn't think I would see patriarchy. I didn't think I would see racism or classism or any of these things, but they fully exist within the yoga sphere. If you look around a classroom, you can see ableism, you can see classism, you can see racism, just depending on like who's around you, right? So it's just like, I think we've been overlooking these things for a long time because, you know, look, look around who owns the yoga companies, who has the most famous Instagram accounts, who makes the most off of these things, mostly a bunch of white people mostly a bunch of affluent, able-bodied white people. So I think even when you open your eyes to that reality, you can just see how inherently wrong it is. And, and when you look at history, you can see how we got here. You can see how colonization, you know, colonization impacted every country on the planet besides a handful. So it's just like, it's, it's kind of ludicrous to think that after raping resources from the entire planet and genociding whole indigenous populations, that we still wouldn't have the air of white supremacy kind of like poisoning so many of these regions all over the planet. But that that is what we have. And we see post-colonized post countries that are still really struggling when they were some of the richest places on earth prior to colonization. So I think not looking at ourselves and not looking at white supremacy and not looking at uh, patriarchy and all these things and how they fit into an historical context, that is really uh, ignorant, especially if you have 
access to the education access, which a lot of white people do. So, um, yeah, I think it's willful ignorance a lot of times. And we just a lot of people just don't want to see it because it benefits them. Yeah, I agree. Do you think that in, in like Europe and other you know countries like, you know, throughout the world, do you feel like they have the same sort of thing um, in yoga as what we have going on in the United States? In terms of like classism, uh, classes, yeah, yeah. I mean, I have taken classes all over the place because I have traveled a lot because I'm super privileged. But it does seem pretty consistent that yoga classes are um, outpriced for anyone that's not affluent. That most of the places, unless you're in a country that's not predominantly white, you see mostly white people. You know, regardless of how mixed the population is. So it's just like it does seem like these things are are fairly consistent. And you look at just the problems. But like you can't go to Italy and say that their yoga classes wouldn't be um, tinged with racism and sexism because Italy inherently has those problems, just like the United States does. Uh, you know, you go to South Africa, South Africa, South Africa was one of the hardest places I've ever been to um, be an assistant on something that was yoga inspired because, you know, I guess we're so desensitized by the extreme racism and sexism that happens in the United States that when you go to a place like South Africa, where only 9% of the population is white and they're still making up 90% of your yoga students, um, you can see how bad this problem is globally because of history. So, and who holds wealth and, you know, like who to this day holds wealth, right? Like I know just from studying government that Europe and the United States hold like 50% of global GDP, right? So it's just like, who holds that wealth? You know, and you, that there's nowhere on earth that you can escape that. So I think these problems are perpetuated all over. Yeah. Um, yeah. I agree. So, you know, with all of this stuff going on, like, um, how do you, how do you, make it to your yoga mat every day. I mean, because it's honestly, it seems like, I mean, you got a lot of things going on in your head and it's okay. We're, we're doing an interview, but I'm like wondering, like, how do you take all of that and still show up at your mat? Well, I definitely know that moving my body and the form, you know, Ashtanga was one of the first things because it incorporates drishti, because it incorporates like a very solidified pranayama that I felt like I was really able, you know, with, with ADHD, you really have a hard time staying in one place. And I feel like, um, Ashtanga yoga specifically was really one of the first times that I felt like. I knew what I was doing and I could do it and it became a moving meditation. You know, yoga actually did help me with my eating disorder and it did help me with my anxiety to um, some degree. So it's just like, I do see those benefits. And I also, you know, the thing that kept me coming back to yoga is because I opened up my first tiny little attic studio when I was 24. And one of the first things I realized is that mainly at that time, women needed a place to collect, to heal from the traumatic world, you know, and that might sound really broad, but you know, yoga has been a really healing space for me. And just in the fact that it's connected so many other, you know, women and even non-binary people and, you know, just people that aren't cis men, it's connected so many of us um, to be able to actually be open and like honest about a lot of things that have happened to us. And that just, it seems a little bit like odd, right? But teacher training spaces really, and even yoga spaces really did become that um, for women in some, in some areas. So I, I think that keeps me coming back just as much as the moving meditation is this, this deep sense of, uh, I have this really, I I feel a commitment to 
my students and to my community to keep showing up. So it's just, it depends on how you do that, right? In some ways, I feel like I need to take a step back. And in other ways, I still want to be there for my students, for my community, and for my peers. So, In what ways do you feel like you need to step back? In the way I don't, you know, running a school, um, I just felt like I needed a break because because of capitalism and because of the fact that people, you know, all it takes is for one person to be pissed off that I'm talking about racism in my yoga teacher training to threaten to sue me. And these aren't, you know, brand new experiences to me. I've I've had a countless amount of people just be so angry at me for you know, what I'm teaching, how I'm teaching it, the way I'm saying it. Um, and, you know, for my own mental health, I think there was, a, there was a point where I realized I needed to step back. But also, I, you know, I work with uh, one of my friends that's from India. I work with another woman who teaches uh, history on, on my YTT, and she's an Indian woman. And I just really want to see people of color and women of color and Indian people, like, take the lead for a second. Like, I want them to have the profits. I want them to be running teacher trainings, you know? So in any way that I can aid the people around me that aren't usually in the spotlight, I want them to take the lead. And does that mean I still won't teach Ashanga or, you know, my sexual misconduct or history or something like that? Of course, I still want to give those, you know, gifts to my community. But at the same time, in some ways, I feel like it's my time to step back. Yeah. Gotcha. And how, how are you going about supporting those people so that they can step up? Well, I mean, I think for one of the first things that we realized is that, you know, yoga teacher trainings weren't accessible to people. And so that we've had a scholarship and a sliding scale tuition for the last couple of years. And, you know, that's a big way to be able to give people um, access to teach in the first place. Right. So like those scholarships enabled, you know, we were still trying to get to the point where we could actually fund people's flights to come to us because they were all in person. So we really felt like we had never really raised enough money to fully do the amount that we wanted. Like we, we wanted, if someone wants to come in from South America, like we don't expect that they can pay the flight, right? We don't expect that they can pay the accommodation and um, a month and a half if they're asking for this scholarship. So it's like, even though we're giving them maybe a $300 tuition, it's still not enough to get a lot of people here. So we really felt like we felt we fell short on being able to help the amount of people that we, we wanted to. And um, I think virtual YTT, although I was extremely resistant to it for a really long time, is actually going to be a really powerful tool to getting these trainings and getting this education and making it accessible for people all over the world, regardless of their socioeconomic, um, you know, status. Yeah. status. So, uh, it, so have you closed your yoga studio? So we still, we haven't been open in five months, the actual yoga space. Our, my actual yoga studio is a nonprofit. So right now, most of the proceeds just go funneling back into like ACLU or um, Planned Parenthood or uh, nonprofits we work with in India, but it has been closed. So right now, we're, we finally started uh, working online, doing online classes. We did our last official 200-hour yoga teacher training back in June. So we're definitely going to take a break from the school for a while and just try to offer more um, affordable, smaller segments where we can, you know, hopefully do them virtually and get more people. But yeah, we're definitely taking a step back. We are in the process also of trying to transfer our studio over to um, our friend Sunaina, who is you know, from India and moved here when they were two years old. And we just feel like that is the best move that we can do for our community. 
Gotcha. Yeah. And how is the community there? Well, I live in Boulder, Colorado, right? So it's 90% white people. It's extremely affluent. It's it's very uh, same, same. So, you know, that is another problem is I was listening to the Yoga is Dead podcast and they're like, listen, donation-based studios are necessary, but they're necessary in areas that need them. And, you know, I don't know if Boulder uh, is that place. So, yeah. Gotcha. And so do you, are you planning on moving? I'm, I'm going to California in uh, January and going to take a break from the studio life and the teacher training life for a while and see if I can move in a different direction. Still, still going to teach, but just not at the same capacity. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you're so passionate about this stuff. It's like, you know, you're, you're fighting for causes that not everyone is fighting for, you know? So it seems like you're necessity, like you're a necessity <laughs> to a certain extent. And so does that mean like, you're not going to be talking about these things anymore? Or does that mean you're going to move on to like some marketing job and, and not focus on these things? Well, I think it's still like, I, you know, I've, I've been blessed recently, you know, because, you know, other women in this community have like uh, Steph, um, Steph and Erin Kelly Art, right? They they just asked me to come on and teach sexual misconduct on their yoga teacher training. And, you know, it would have been really easy for these two women to just redo it themselves. And instead, I really feel like my community is really like lifting me up and allowing me to teach the things that I'm really passionate about. And if I can just, if that can be my tool, because, you know, unfortunately, even, you know, the reason sexual misconduct education is so important to me is because multiple times in yoga settings and specifically in an Ashtanga yoga Mysore setting, I have been, you know, groped by male teachers. So it's just, it's really, really unfortunate. And, you know, it's, I say this the same way, as I said, after I had been sexually assaulted, I didn't have the language of what had happened until later. It's the same thing, even as a teacher, even as a, a, a yoga school owner, I still sat in that room and allowed this man to touch me multiple times and didn't know what to do. You know, and I think that's because we don't have the education. We don't talk about it. And as a community, we're really afraid of being ostracized. And we've seen from Karen Rain, we've seen from all the women who were abused by Patabi Joyce, that their main issue redundantly is that the community was not there for them and the community did not believe them. And I think we see that reiterated in, in life right now. You know, I don't want to throw anyone under the bus, but I remember last year when Sharat gave that apology you know, for, for his grandfather. And, you know, there were so many Ashanga, famous Ashanga teachers on there being like, you're so brave. Thank you so much. And that just made me want to throw up because what's brave is continuing to exist after someone sexually um, abuses you. And that what Sharat did was not brave. And it was too little and it was too late. And I just didn't appreciate, you know, the actual apology hurt me less than the comments from famous teachers on that apology, just applauding him to that degree, because it's it's very insensitive to the victims of, you know, Pabi Joyce. It's very insensitive to all the victims of Mysore Studios all over the planet. And I'm sure there's handfuls, there's thousands, there's, there's probably endless people that have been assaulted in these spaces and we just don't talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny because, uh, I I've heard several comments like that from Sharat and I've had several conversations, um, or about Sharat's comment 
and then I've heard had several conversations with authorized teachers, and like I like I feel like the gist of it is that no one felt like he should take responsibility for someone else's actions. Well, so, if you're still uh, the one benefiting from the legacy of your grandfather, you're still the one benefiting materially and financially from that, then I feel like it is your responsibility because you're running the school that he started, right? I, I mean, I'm not debating you. I'm, I'm just, but that was like the general uh, consensus with a, with a lot of, uh, you know, the, the comments that I heard get thrown around and coffee shops and the breakfast places is that like, why, why should Sherrod, you know, have to answer for someone else's actions? Because he's benefiting from their legacy. That's my, that's my, that's my simple. And like that, you know, if you're not making money off of something, you have pictures. I've been to Mysore. There's pictures of Batabi Joyce all over, right? Like if we know that this man and excuse me, trigger warning, digitally rape people and was humping people when they were going, like, it's just like, how can, how is that trauma sensitive? How is that not just holding up a sexual abuser? Right. So it's just like, if that's, if you're going to still benefit from this name and this legacy and this school, then I feel like it's your responsibility to talk about it and acknowledge it. And, and I even feel like that goes down to me as an Ashtanga practitioner and teacher, right? It's my responsibility. Yeah. I mean, as a, you know, a person who has a community, I've, I had to have several conversations with a lot of the people that were, you know, obviously triggered because of, of what was happening but then also like a bunch of community conversations as well, where we had to kind of process it as a community to like, you know, we took Batavi Joyce's pictures down, you know, like there were some things that we did in the studio that made people feel, I mean, there's consent coins um, or I guess non-consent coins. Right. But, uh, so that, so that people get the, um, you know, the, the choice of whether or not they want to be adjusted, you know, I, so I'm, I'm interested do you continually practice Ashtanga yoga or do you just do it or do you just do like, uh, you know, like whatever you feel like on whatever day? I think, okay. well, I've been practicing Ashtanga or no. I'm definitely not a hardcore Ashtangi. I don't believe. I, I definitely also, you know, my time in Mysore convinced me that I am an independent thinker. And I saw a lot of the opposite of that in Mysore, actually, where it was like people were actually afraid to be seen like eating meat or like drinking alcohol, even though they usually do or like whatever. And it's just like that culture, I think is also what that fear culture is also what produces um, abusers like Patabi, right? It was because everyone's so afraid to question anything. So for my body, I've definitely found that Ashtanga works better about three times a week, you know, to give or take, but it's been an ongoing practice for me for the last almost eight years. So it's definitely something that has never fully left, right? Like I still practice Ashtanga yoga every week, usually multiple times and um you know sometimes not as hard for I was on Kapatasana for like two three years and I just my whole body started to hurt and I just I, I just don't know I just don't know exactly it was hard for me to find you know I had Mary Taylor as a teacher for a while and she was amazing probably my only Mysore teacher that I've really felt like understood me um but besides that you know it's just it's it's a lot of pushing you know I had my, my first Mysore teacher checked my mulabanda by sticking their hands in my lower pelvis, you know, and I just feel like I've had also a lot of bad experiences with my sore teachers. So yeah, it's hard wow. for sure. Yeah. That's, um, that's, that's too much. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, that shouldn't happen. hundred percent certain of that. 
So if people wanted to reach out to you and, you know, talk to you and uh, kind of address some of these things, how would they find you? I mean, I definitely give out my email. It's uh, my name, sam.patrano at gmail.com. And that's a great way because sometimes um, I get a lot of anxiety when it comes to uh, just like interacting with people sometimes. So email is a really good buffer for me to be able to respond when I feel good about it. <laughs> um, so definitely email is a great, great option if anyone had any questions or anything that you want to discuss with me. People do do that sometimes. So just, just reach out and I um, usually will answer fairly quickly. <laughs> Gotcha. Cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on here. You gave us so much information and a lot to think about. Awesome. Um, yeah, it's been really powerful to just kind of hear your perspective. And, you know, this is stuff that you've been talking about for like the last couple of years. And so to just kind of hear it firsthand, I think is really important just for everyone to hear. And so, Sam, thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in. If you want more information about Ashtanga Yoga, visit ashtangayogacolumbus.com. You can also check out my website, which is taylorhuntyoga.com. See you guys next time.